I like to know where I'm, where I'm at. Now, I know that might not seem like an astounding statement, but my wife and children can attest to my horrible sense of direction. There are many times I think I know where I'm at, and I don't. Um, I like to know where I'm at more than just direction-wise. I like to know where I'm at when, let's say, for instance, I'm out on a run. I like to know what the goal was before I started running and what maybe mile marker I'm at or if it's a time run, like how far I have left to go. When we flew back and forth from the U.S. to Senegal, I would always start my my watch so that I knew, not based on that little screen with the plane that looks like it's hardly moving, but on my watch, I had an idea of where we were at, how long we had been traveling, and how much longer we had to go. And the worst flights were the flights where I failed to start my watch. And so I was just sitting there going, I do not know where we are at and when we are landing. And it was painful. We like to know where we're at. And as we look at this passage this morning, I think that we will find that it is incredibly significant that you and I understand where we are at or where you're sitting in the auditorium this morning, but where we are at in redemptive history. Right as we start our passage, verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen... So this statement throws us all the way back to the persecution that was brought about by the death of Stephen. This statement, as it were, I think, kind of, kind of sends us back behind what we've been looking at with Peter. Okay? So there's a possibility that what Luke is doing here is saying that an outflow of Peter going to Cornelius and an outflow of Peter going to the church in Jerusalem resulted in others going to the Gentiles. But I, that doesn't seem to fit with the timing that we get here from Luke. It almost seems to say this was going on while these other things were happening with Peter. So those who were scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution, a persecution that arose over Stephen, where did they travel? Well, they traveled up the coast. That's Phoenicia. They traveled to Cyprus, which is an island. And they traveled there. And then eventually they get to Antioch. And the end of that verse says that they spoke to no one except for Jews. Now, now we've talked a bit about that and why that might have been the case. These who were scattered still only preaching the gospel to fellow Jews. But here's something that we need to see and that's really important as we move through the, the book of Luke. Paul House is quoted as saying, Acts has no purpose, no plot, no structure, and no history without suffering. Suffering is a major theme throughout the book of Acts. And if you remember, we talked the other week about another significant theme in the book of Acts is the kingdom. It, it, it bookends this book of Acts. It starts, Luke starts talking about the kingdom and then Luke ends talking about the kingdom. And one of the significant questions of the disciples is, okay, the king came, he, we preached the kingdom, and he suffered and he died and he rose again, so is now the time for the kingdom. But then Jesus ascends up to the Father. And the question is, okay, so the kingdom has been established, but clearly now is not the time for its fullness. So what happens in this in-between? 
And it may even be that for Theophilus and the original recipients of the Gospel of Luke and this second volume, the, the Acts of the Apostles or the ongoing Acts of Jesus Christ, one of his major questions may have been, listen, if the Messiah came and he conquered sin and death and he's ruling and reigning, why is all this suffering going on? Why are the people who follow Jesus, who are taken into His kingdom, His kingdom citizens, why are they suffering? In fact, one of the pivotal verses in the, in the book of Acts is Acts 14.22. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's not to say you've got you to suffer enough to get your ticket to get in. The gates of heaven aren't closed and you have to show all your battle wounds before the gates will open to you. No, the point is this. The point is that the already part of the kingdom that has been established is not the fullness. And that in God's purpose and His plan and His design, in between what has already been established and the waiting of the return of our King in its fullness, He has ordained that His people will suffer and be persecuted and that He would use that suffering and that persecution to accomplish His purposes. Now, I know that is not a cheery message. I don't like that. And I don't think when we read the the accounts here in Acts, we need to read people who are just kind of skimming over life and that the suffering they were enduring did not affect them. No, it directly affected them. You and I read that first verse like those living in a very transient world, right? But there wasn't U-Haul back then. They couldn't just call up DirecTV and have their satellite dish moved. Moving was hugely significant. If they were displaced because of persecution, it reminds us of the intensity of the persecution and how much this would have disrupted their lives. Lives were lived in community. This would have been huge trial for them. Very difficult for them. And yet they're scattered. And why are they scattered? Because of persecution. And yet it's through this very persecution that God chooses to work so that the gospel spreads. One of the greatest dangers that we face is to assume that the present time in which we live as children of God, as citizens of the kingdom, is to live a life of safety, security, pleasure, and happiness. We are waiting for, longing for, looking forward to the return of our king and the fullness of the establishment of his kingdom. But in the meantime, what we learn as we walk through the book of Acts is that we can expect that we will endure much persecution and suffering. We are kingdom citizens in hostile territory. Now don't get me wrong, there's not another king, but there is a prince of the power of this world. And he is adamantly against the advancement of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He will do everything in His power that He can to stand against that kingdom, to fight against that kingdom, to inhibit that kingdom. He knows that He has lost, but He by no means has given up. And so what do we do? We are called to suffer. We are called to persecution and to trials. 
We are called to remember what we see in the cross of Christ that through the greatest persecution, through the greatest suffering, God accomplished the greatest good. Both of my daughters love to read. And so one of the things that I do as a great father, supportive of their reading habit, I do call it an addiction at times. Just get one of them with a good book and you've lost them for weeks. Is that sometimes I will, my dad duty is to come to them and try to tickle them, wrestle them, to take them away from their book. And it's not enough to take them away from their book. I need to tickle them, wrestle them enough that they lose their place. (laughs) That's the funny part, right? They closed the book and had their finger in it while they were trying to block me. And then I tickle so much, wrestle so hard, their finger comes out of their place, and then the mold, Dad, I lost my place! Right? And it's fantastic. At least, well, I think it's fantastic. They have yet to see the humor in it, but... Church, Satan would want nothing more than to distract you with suffering and persecution till you lose your place. So your finger comes out of the page of redemptive history and either you're confused thinking that you should be living paradise now or you're confused thinking that you serve a God who does not understand the suffering and the persecution to which He has called you. That you become confused in thinking maybe God's not good in failing to look back and see what He's already accomplished in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. Or you would become confused and fail to look forward and know that there's a glorious hope that awaits us. And so in the meantime, you would make the Christian life a life of trying to be safe and happy and just content and everything's good and my quiet time and my my sermons and everything that I ingest in my spiritual life is about trying to make me feel good and live my best life here and now. This is not the time. This is not the time. And so what do we do? Well, I think we have a great example in Acts chapter 4. When the early church first encountered persecution, did they ignore the persecution? No. I imagine there were many prayers that the persecution would come to an end, but here's one thing they did pray for. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for boldness. And I think God answered that prayer. Well, obviously in that passage in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, we see an immediate answer, like God shook the building. That's pretty, I mean, we're not saying you got to shake the building, Lord. I mean, that would be neat, but we're not asking. But but here's what we see, I think, even in, in Acts chapter 11, is we see God continuing to answer that prayer. Because these who are scattered because of persecution are still doing what? Still speaking with boldness. The very thing that they were being persecuted for caused them to flee, disrupt their whole lives. They're still declaring Christ. It's incredible. Well, our passage continues. And so these who are only declaring the good news, the word to Jews, verse 20 sets a contrast. But some of them, men from Cyprus, again, Cyprus is that island off the coast in the Mediterranean. Cyrene is in North Africa. These were probably Hellenistic Jews that were there in Jerusalem. We know that there were, um, uh, that if we were to go back and look, the day of Pentecost, there were, there were people there from Cyrene, uh, that, that Luke records. Cyprus, we know that there was a large Jewish population there. 
And so they make it all the way to Antioch. Now Josephus tells us, I know you guys read Josephus all the time, it's riveting reading. Josephus tells us he calls Antioch one of the third greatest city in Rome. By the first century, it was estimated that the population of Antioch was a half a million people. All right, so don't think of Antioch as some tiny town. This was, this was a huge city. It was the providential capital of Syria. This was a major city. So apart from Jerusalem, this is the first account we have of the gospel penetrating such a significant place. So when they arrive in Antioch, they speak to the Hellenists. Now, you may have a note there in your Bible. Hellenist is probably the best translation, but it seems clear that when Luke uses the word Hellenist here, he's referring specifically to Gentiles, to Greeks. And so that's the contrast. They, instead of just talking to Jews, were talking to Gentiles. And here's one of the simple and beautiful things in the passage is that while they're going to the Gentiles, guess what they don't do? They don't preach a different gospel. There wasn't a gospel for the Jews and then one for the Gentiles. No, the same Lord Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord of all. In fact, that's exactly what we see here at the end of verse 21. It says they preached the Lord Jesus. That's what they did. They preached the Lord Jesus to these Gentiles in Antioch that Jesus is Lord. And verse 21 says that the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. God's hand was with them, and because God's hand was with them, many believed, or the language is believing they turned, is what happened. Now, it's interesting here to note that there's no apostles involved in this. Right? In some of the other conversions that we've seen, we've had at least uh, what, we, what we assume to be some of the first deacons in the church of Jerusalem, right? Philip was a part of it. But here we have, dare we say, just ordinary people. And by ordinary, I don't mean to put them down. I just mean they didn't have any title. They didn't have any official role that we know of. These are normal people who are going out declaring the gospel and God is using them and he's using these particular men from Cyprus and Cyrene and they are going to be a part of establishing a church there in Antioch. Now that's incredibly important for us because the, the, we have this thing we call the, the priesthood of believers. And it is to say that what Scripture teaches us is that there's not a hierarchy in the Christian faith. There aren't those who are one level, and until you get to that level, you can only do you know, these few things, and, and you're just constantly trying to kind of level up. or those. No, that's not the way it works. Even while there were still apostles functioning who had a very specific role, and even while, as we see in our passage, there were still prophets around, and they had a specific role, God was working through His Spirit who is now indwelling all who believed to use them to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These men, these believers who arrive in Antioch have everything they need to advance the gospel. They have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and they have the good news about Jesus. And that's all they needed. They didn't need to have some badge they didn't need to have a seminary degree. They didn't need to have, I don't know, a bald head, although that would probably help. 
All they needed to have was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the good news about Jesus Christ. And God was delighted through His hand to work through them to bring many to faith in Christ. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, which one of those do you not have? If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then come talk to me after the service and I'd love to sit down with you and we can walk through the gospel of Jesus Christ because all who have believed in Him are indwelled by His Spirit. Are you unclear on what the good news is about Jesus? That He died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again the third day? And that all who place their faith in Him have forgiveness and are given eternal life? What's holding you back? What's holding me back? Are we waiting to get to a certain level, to get to a certain degree, to get a certain, I don't know, a level of understanding before we move forward? I, we don't know. We know that in that, that church in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. But I confess, as I read this passage, I imagine that these guys did not know a whole lot. What they knew is they had been saved. What they knew is that they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. What they knew is that Jesus was Lord of all. And that was enough. And they went out with that message, boldly proclaiming it. The advancement of the kingdom of God is not intended to be a spectator sport. Where a bunch of people sit and watch, I don't know, fit people run around on a field. Those who need the exercise most eat the hot dogs and popcorn and drink the beer while those who really need the exercise don't need the exercise are running around killing themselves. That's not the Christian life. God's plan and His purpose is not to select a few highly qualified, extremely intelligent people to do the bulk of the work. No, His plan and His purpose is that He would extravagantly save ordinary people and launch them out on an extraordinary mission empowered by His Holy Spirit and with the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, as Paul would later go on to say, the power of God and His salvation. That's His plan. There are no bench warmers in this thing. That's not what God intends. And as the kingdom of God is to go forward, as the gospel is to advance, it's to advance as all who are members, citizens of that kingdom, declare that the king reigns and that others too can come and be a part of that kingdom and joyfully submit to his lordship. That's the way it advances. And so I ask you this morning, what part do you have to play? If you're sitting the bench, it's not because... Uh, you got ready to get up. You had your jersey all together. And God said, no, no, no not yet. Sit back there. Sit back down. No, not, not you. I mean, you snuck on the team somehow, but I, they're not putting you in. No, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And our confidence as we go out is not in our ability. It's not in our cleverness. It's in that reality that the Spirit of God indwells us and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation that He's still in the act of saving sinners. And so we go out and we declare boldly and clearly and compassionately that good news with robust hope in God. And so they declare these things to the extent that again we have, as it were, the sovereign telephone game. That's kind of how I call it. This keeps happening in, in the book of Acts. And you haven't noticed. Word gets to Jerusalem. right? Word gets to Jerusalem of what's going on. And who do they send? 
Well, they send Barnabas to Antioch. Now, why do they choose Barnabas? Well, the text doesn't tell us. It's interesting that they don't choose to send an apostle, but they choose Barnabas, who Luke goes on to give these, these wonderful words. He's the only man in all of Acts called a good man. And then the description that he's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith remind us of Stephen, who is also said to be full of the Holy Spirit and to faith. We know that Barnabas was, in fact, a man who was generous. In Acts chapter 4, 36 and 37, we find out about him selling a field and giving the money. We know he's the guy that brought the, the, the Saul after his conversion and he comes to Jerusalem. He's the one who brings Saul to the, uh, the apostles there in Jerusalem. So we know these things. We know also that Barnabas is an encourager. That's what his, his name here means, son of encouragement. And it would also seem that Barnabas didn't have a problem working with Gentiles. At least we don't get any indication of that. He was also from Cyprus, so maybe the fact that these men who were a part of starting this church, some of them were from Cyprus, I don't know, maybe there was a connection there. But Barnabas shows up, and what does Barnabas do? Verse 23 tells us, when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I love that verse. Barnabas shows up, <clears throat> sent from Jerusalem. <clears throat> I'm here to fix everything. Barnabas shows up, and what does he do? Well, first he, he came, he showed up in person, and then what does he do? He stops, he observes, he engages probably in many conversations, many meals with people. He sits, he watches, and what does he observe? What a peculiar phrase. He saw the grace of God. What does that look like? If you told your kid to draw a picture of the grace of God, what would they draw? If I told you to draw a picture, don't do it right now, but if I told you to draw a picture of the grace of God, what would it, what would it look like? It says he saw the grace of God. He observed the grace of God. Well, what did he observe? Well, given what we know in the context of Acts, he probably observed spirit-filled people. Because the Spirit of God indwelling people was a clear sign of God's hand at work and His grace. He probably saw, and clearly by the, the exhortation that He gives them, He saw people who were robust in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who were declaring their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And between that indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that robust faith in Christ, He was probably seeing lives that were being transformed. And He rejoiced. He rejoiced in that. He rejoiced in it and he had had nothing to do with it. It didn't have his logo on it. It wasn't the hashtag that connected to his ministry. It was just the fact that he made observation that the hand of God was at work. And I even think part of the reason that Barnabas rejoiced is because he had no part in it. Jerusalem had had no part in it. God was at work. God was accomplishing His purposes far beyond what Barnabas could do and far beyond what those believers still in Jerusalem could do. God was spreading the gospel and Barnabas just rejoices. He sees the grace of God and he's glad. Brothers and sisters, if I, we were to stop right now and I were to ask you, where have you observed the grace of God this week? 
Would you have to think for a long time? Is this a part of your life? Where as you move about in the world, your theology of the hand of God working informs you to the place where you expect to run into God's grace? Do you expect it? Are you looking for it? Are you expecting that God is at work and that you, if you will just stop talking long enough, I'm talking to myself, okay? But if you'll stop talking long enough, if you'll observe, you will see the grace of God in the lives of people around you. And when you see it, would you recognize that no one on their own is good? Would you recognize that there's not good apart from God? And would we be a people who would stop and just take a moment to celebrate, to rejoice in the fact that there is still grace to be observed because of our good God? Because He is at work. No matter how bad things get, God is still at work and His grace is observable. And so what does Barnabas do? He sees the grace. He rejoices in that work of God. And then he exhorts them. He encourages them. What does he encourage them to? He encourages them to remain faithful to the Lord with devout hearts. That's really the, I think the better translation, that's the way the, the net Bible translates. And in the ESV it says with steadfast purpose, but devout hearts. Barnabas says to them what? Okay, you've gotten this far, but you need to change this, you need to do that, and you need to flip that over to there, and this, that. No, he doesn't do any of that. Here's what he says. He says, he says, I am rejoicing because I see that you have faith in Jesus Christ. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to Him. I rejoice that you are believing. Believe even deeper. May your faith grow all the more. Double down on your hope in Jesus Christ. That's what Barnabas says. This Jesus who saved you, oh, He is not going to let you go. And He will finish what He started. Stay firm with Him. What an exhortation. What a great exhortation. Hold fast. To Jesus. The work that He started, He is going to complete it. He didn't save you to drop you. Remember, He's Lord. Remember, there's no other. Cling fast to Him. Even when you're tempted in other things, you think, maybe I'll go back to my idolatry or this, that. No, cling to Jesus. He sought you out. He did everything that you might be saved. Know that He's going to complete that work. Stay steadfast. Brothers and sisters, I want to commend to you a ministry of encouragement. A ministry of exhortation. All of us can probably think about moments in our lives where we received a word of encouragement and how powerful that was. It might have been a word of encouragement about the way that we looked. I don't get many of those, oddly enough. It might have been about something that we did. It may have come from a spouse or a child or a coworker, and it may have been about something small, but it sticks with us. It resonates with us. How much deeper a ministry of encouragement that comes to a brother or sister in Christ and says to them, I see God's grace in you. I see the hand of God working in you. 
And here's my encouragement to you, brother. Here's my encouragement to you, sister. Hold fast to Christ who started that work because He's going to finish it. How encouraging. What would it be like if we took the time Yes, there's plenty of things going wrong in our world, and there are always plenty of things going wrong in our lives. But imagine if that became something we took seriously, a ministry of encouragement. As a parent, I had many really bad ideas when we first started parenting. We should just stop and pray for all the firstborn children because they endure some stuff. I'll tell you one thing that I, 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 I'm going to confess, I am horrible at this. This has, this has um, been used by the Spirit of God to convict me all week long. To be one who takes seriously a ministry of encouragement. But I was certainly terrible at it as a father. I thought that a really biblical dad was one who was like in the KGB and I was always looking for where are you screwing up and bam! Discipline! Rod of correction! Right? Oh, parents, fathers, how powerful when we speak words of encouragement over our children. To look at them and say, I see God's grace in your life. And I'm so thankful for it. To see a dad rejoicing that he sees God's grace in the lives of his children and then exhorts them, hold fast to Jesus, son, because he's started a work in you and he's going to finish it. And to say to your daughter, daughter, I see God's grace in your life. He's started a work in you and he's going to finish it. He's going to finish it. But in the meantime, dad's going to do a little dance because I'm fired up about what God is doing. What if we do that as a church together? Some of you are excellent at this, and I thank God for you. You speak words of encouragement in our church family. You send notes. You send emails. And it is fantastic. May your, as Justin would often say, may your tribe increase. And may those of us such as myself who is slow to do this stop and take note. God is at work. His hand is at work. And God uses this ministry by Barnabas as the end of this, uh, verse 24 says to add again a great many people to the Lord. So what does Barnabas do? Verse 25. Well, he goes and gets Saul from Tarsus. Now, why did he think to get Saul? Again, Luke doesn't tell us, but it may have been that because of the time that Barnabas spent with Saul in Jerusalem, he was aware of Saul's testimony and that Saul was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And lo and behold, we got Gentiles coming to Jesus. So who do we need? Right? You need to go get that Saul guy. This was no short trip that Barnabas takes to get Saul from Tarsus. He finds him and he brings him back. And it says, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, what Luke is doing, if you haven't noticed, is he's, he's giving some of the same descriptions of the, the hand of God working now in Antioch like it did in Jerusalem. Do you notice how many times? A great many people. It's to resonate with the day of Pentecost. Thousands come to faith. Peter preaches at the temple and thousands come to faith. 
And then what do we see characterizing this group? One of the first things we see is they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right? Barnabas and Saul now are there, and what are they doing? They're teaching, and people are there. For a whole year, they're teaching, and the church is gathering and hearing and continuing to grow. And then we're given this note. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christians. The, the, I, the, the, those who were outside of this movement had an issue now because it no longer fell along ethnic lines. When it was only Jews, they could just could be a subset of Judaism and they could, they could label it that way. But now we've got Jews and Gentiles together. Now it's no longer ethnicity that clarifies who this group is. And so the outsiders are looking going, well, what do we call this thing? Jews, Gentiles together, women, men, rich, poor, all coming together. What characterizes this group? <laughs> They're not all Romans. They're not all Jews. They're not all Gentiles. What, what's the one thing that's bringing this group together? What's the one thing they keep talking about? What's the one thing that they all seem to hold in common? Christ. So we'll call them the Christ group. That's who we'll call them. This isn't the way the disciples talked about themselves. In fact, it wasn't until much later that we first see Christians calling themselves Christians. And the first reference to it comes from uh, uh, one of the heads of the, of the church there in Antioch, as a matter of fact. But what an incredible label to have. That what characterized this group was that they were followers of Christ. Verse 27 says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. I'm still waiting for the person who's into biblical names who's going to use Agabus for the name of their son, just deep and don't do that. Please don't do that. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all of the world. Now we got all kinds of questions because Luke just drops on us. There are these prophets. You know, they're just prophets around. They come from Jerusalem and Agabus is one of them. Yes, there are still prophets functioning at this time in redemptive history. And Agabus will pop up again towards the end of Acts. God is still using prophets to communicate His Word to His people. And as redemptive history moves along, He silences that prophetic voice because He has given the totality of His, of His revealed Word here in Scripture. And then we see later on in redemptive history, towards end times, prophets begin to, to reappear. But here we have Agabus, and he stands up and he tells of a great famine that's coming and it's going to cover the whole world. And Luke gives one of his historical notes here that it's in the days of Claudius. Now, Luke is probably saying when he says that this famine is going to cover the whole world, he's probably talking about the Roman Empire. That's what he means. And he uses the same language other places to mean just that. It's going to cover the Roman Empire. If that's the case, then this great famine did not need to be a famine that that covered the entire Roman Empire, meaning that nobody was getting rain or there were locusts all over the whole Roman Empire. All that needs to happen, I only know this because I read other smart people. I don't know this stuff, but that is that uh, Egypt needed to be affected. 
because Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. So if there was a famine in Egypt or crops were affected in Egypt, then guess what happened? Well, famine spread throughout the empire. And because uh, of the way things were set up in this day and time, and of course, we would never do this, ever, because we're so much more civilized than they were back then, if, let's just say, a product got scarce, like, I don't know, toilet paper. And we thought, geez, I don't know if I'll be able to get that. We might just possibly begin to hoard toilet paper, right? And then what happens? You go to the store and there's no toilet paper. There's no paper towels. There's no napkins. There's no tissues, right? We become scarce. Those who are rich begin to hoard it and store it. And who takes the greatest hit? The poor. Those on the margins. Those who don't have the ability to buy a month's worth of grain, don't have anywhere to store it, couldn't afford it, right? Well, who fits into that category, particularly in Jerusalem and throughout Judea? This group of Christ followers who have been moved out of their communities because of their commitment to Christ, who are now being persecuted and pushed to the edge in the margins of society. And so this famine comes And in verse 29, we're told, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now again, what is Luke doing here? He's trying to show us that when the Spirit of God shows up, some of the same characteristics show up in the people that the Spirit indwells. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And what else happens? They give. We saw this throughout um, Luke's kind of overviews of the church there in Jerusalem. They shared things in common, right? Barnabas, right? This is part of when he pops on the scene. He's got a field. He sells it. He lays all the money at the apostles' feet and they distribute it. This is just part of what happens with spirit and dwelt people. Those who are saved. And so now Luke is showing us that it's happening here in Antioch. In this church in Antioch. It's happening. What's happening? They're aware of need. And the crazy thing is, this need is not their neighbor. This need is people that many of them have never met before. They don't don't know the Jews in Judea and in Jerusalem. I mean, they know Barnabas, right? And maybe some of the men who first showed up, right? Because they lived in Jerusalem. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene, maybe they still had family in Jerusalem or they knew some people there. But these Gentiles who've come to faith who live in Antioch, I don't, I don't know those people living over there in Jerusalem and in, in Judea. And I mean, wait, wait. What happens though? No one forces them, right? Don't picture Barnabas here, Mr. Giver. He, he didn't go around and lay the guilt on them. I know you have money. I know you want to give me your money. Right? That, was, that didn't happen. What does it say? It says that they determined according to each person's ability to give and to send the relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of who? Barnabas and Saul. So this is really the first time that Barnabas and Saul are sent out from the church in Antioch. 
Here's this other beautiful thing that's happening. I'll just make note of it. The flow has been out of Jerusalem to other places. That's been the flow of the book of Acts, right? Out of Jerusalem to other places. And now here's the first time. What happens to the flow? It goes backwards. Now this church in Antioch is raising funds and sending it to Jerusalem. It's a beautiful picture. It's a wonderful thing. And yes, I am going to dare to, 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 to step into to this realm of giving. Giving. It characterized the early church. Not just here in Acts, but it was one of the identifying markers throughout early church history. In fact, there were philosophers who joked that if you had financial need, just pretend to be a Christian and they'll take care of you. Giving. Giving that was not based upon, oh, finally I got the raise at work and I have some extra. No, this was giving with what they had. This was even giving out of need. It was giving sacrificially. It was giving. Why? It was giving because, because there was a belief in the reality that this was not paradise and that there was a coming kingdom and that in the meantime they had this ability to take earthly things temporal things give them up and in exchange gain eternal things because they recognized that Jesus Christ, just like God had promised, came, lived a perfect life, died for the sins of the world, was buried, rose again, and ascended to the Father, and that He was coming back. They remembered where they were at in redemptive history and they recognized that if what they had of physical things could be given to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ, praise God for it. And if they could give so that the gospel could continue to go forward and advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, praise God for it. What better way to use the little bit of pocket change that I have? I mean, there's not a better exchange rate in all the world can't stand exchange rate. If you travel around the world, exchange rates are awful. Try and figure out what this dollar means and this currency and all that kind of stuff. And you go to buy something, a Coke, and you don't know whether you're paying way too much or too little. And it's just frustrating. This is an incredible exchange rate. Take what God has given you by grace, hand it back over to Him, and watch Him bring in eternal treasures. You can't beat that. You cannot beat that. This should characterize us. As I mentioned, giving was one of the things that characterized the early church. And it wasn't that they sat around and waited until they had extra to give. No, this giving is not about giving up the pursuit of good things. I think we think that way sometimes. We live in a very materialistic society and we connect stuff with happiness, safety, contentment, security, all of these things. The, the plea of Scripture is not stop pursuing good things. The plea of Scripture is pursue better things. Pursue greater things. Pursue ultimate things. Your riches in this world are shadows of a greater glory. 
of greater rewards. Whatever you and I are able to build here of our kingdom with our manicured lawn, don't look at my lawn when you leave today. It's not highly manicured. But whatever it is, whatever that kingdom in your eyes looks like, the car, the house, the the chickens, but whatever it is that this is my kingdom, I've got the latest iPhone computer, whatever it is, I have all of the recipes that are the greatest in the world, I've built it all, it's all stored up here, whatever contentment and satisfaction that gives you know this, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a greater kingdom. A greater kingdom with a greater king. And he's coming. He's coming in all that you and I have laid down in service of His kingdom, will be worth it. It will be absolutely worth it. Well, where are we at? Where are you at? I know many of you are hoping. I hope we're at the end of this sermon, right? Has the temptations of this world have have the pressures of this world, have the stresses. Listen to me, church, we, we've talked about this. I know we are going through a hard time as a church. And it is not to ignore any of the difficulties that we are going through. But here's what I do know, is that Satan would delight to come and to use those things to distract you and me. That our fingers would come out of these pages And that we would be distracted thinking maybe God's not good. We'd forget why we're here. We'd forget that we live in this period of glorious redemptive history between the already and the not yet. And we'd fail to recognize that we're indwelt with the Spirit of God and we have the good news about Jesus Christ. We have everything that we need to go and declare that with boldness and compassion to a world that's dying and desperately needs the hope of a Savior. May that not happen. We absolutely have work to do. We do, we do, we do, and we do not want to ignore that. But may we not be distracted. May Satan not get us to take the pages out of his work, out of God's work of redemption, and we forget where we are. In fact, it's as we suffer. It's as we walk through trials. It's as we're in need. And we persist that God is glorified and that our witness expands because the world can't make sense of who we are and what we're doing. And perhaps they would turn and look at us and say, I don't know what this group, these weird conglomeration of people are, but here's what they keep talking about. Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your hand that is at work. We're thankful for your hand that is at work here among us today. And I pray that you would so work in us that today we might stop and take a moment to observe your grace and to rejoice and to encourage one another to hold fast to Christ. And then as we leave this place, empowered with the Holy Spirit, with the the message, the only message that is the power of God unto salvation, I pray that we would go out and we would declare, boldly, compassionately declare, the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. 
And I pray, Father, that with all that we walk through, and I know there are, some of us are walking through incredibly dark and difficult seasons in our lives. And we are not here to ignore the dark clouds of your providence that hang over us. But may those dark clouds not become a means to to distract us and to confuse us by where we are at in your redemptive plan. May we look back and see the cross of Jesus Christ and an empty tomb and know that our King has come and He's established His kingdom. And may that give us the confidence to look forward with hope to a future of a returning King. And may we know for certain that all that we endure in this lifetime, when we see our Savior, will be light and momentary afflictions. For there awaits a crown of glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.